Back here in the drivehubler.com studio, I'm James Boyd here with Jimmy Cooks, Eddie Garrison, 107.5 The Fan. It's been an exciting day so far, but um, obviously it's been a big week for the Pacers. Massive. <laughs> no Wimby to Indy. No. However, I canceled have... the order, believe it or not. <laughs> that, that, that Wimby to Indy t-shirt order, there was time. There was a grace period, so I did cancel those. Don't worry. However, we do have my buddy Rafael Barlow on the line. He covers the NBA at large. At his own spot, NBA Big Board, he's been a scout for years. Um, he saw Wimby play in person overseas. He's seen a lot of these guys before they got on our radar. Rafael, how you doing, my man? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing good. Long time, no talk. But as I told Shane Young the other day, when I reach out to my NBA friends, they always get back to me. So much love, <laughs> brother. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, man. Anytime, anytime. The first thing I'll dive into is the Pacers got the number seven pick. Who are some guys you're looking at that you think will be a good fit for them scheme-wise and team need-wise as they try to build more around Halliburton and Benedict Matherin? The first name that, that comes to mind is Taylor Hendricks from Central Florida. Is a guy that really came out of nowhere, wasn't a top 50 recruit, didn't enter the season with a, a big buzz, but is in position to be a top 10 pick. He shot 39% from three. In my opinion, I think the Pacers need some help at the forward spots, and he can come in and knock down shots and, and defend, and I think he has a tremendous upside. Gotcha. Rafael, when you look at the top five of this draft and where the Pacers are at as a franchise, we don't need to go into what it would cost, but is there anybody past Wembenyama if you were to find a way to move up to two, three, or four. I know you just mentioned Hendricks, and he's been mocked as high as that in some area. Is there anybody worth making a move up a couple spots instead of drafting where the Pacers are at seven? I'd say Brandon Miller. I think he provides versatility as far as being able to defend multiple positions. He shot 38% from the floor. I'm sorry, 38% from three. And that number was higher until he had like a historically bad NCAA tournament. So he was around 40% from three on seven attempts per game throughout the season. And I think he is one of the more ready players to come in and contribute to, to winning. So, Rafael, I know Victor Wembanyama is going to be the number one pick. The Spurs should just say it now. Don't give us none of that. We're going to evaluate everyone. Um, <laughs> but for yeah. you, you saw this guy in person, uh, I believe a few times now, what has that been like, and what is the aura or the hype around him, um, considering that the comparisons he's being brought up to or against are LeBron, Kareem, you know, guys who have had that kind of hype coming out of the prep level? Well, one, I think it's unfair. I mean, the, I mean, he's in a position where it's almost going to be impossible to exceed the expectations. So I try to be realistic but at the same time it's hard not to be really excited about what he can be and and just his upside is I mean the sky's the limit for him I've seen him I want to say I've seen him in person five times now the first time I saw him it was it was not good it was actually on my wedding day that's a whole different story (laughs) are you telling me this (laughs) yeah I got got married in Paris and me and my wife got married at the Eiffel Tower like that's awesome. Six o'clock in the morning. That's that's the only way you can like get a good shot, like pictures with nobody being in the background. Sure. We got married super early, and Europe their games start super late, so the game started like nine o'clock. So it's like, hey, you want to go to see this Wimbayama kid? And unfortunately, he got in foul trouble <laughs> in like the first <laughs> four or five minutes of the game, and my wife is kind of looking at me like, so this is the guy that you're saying could be the future. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I would like to think that I know this didn't happen, but there's part of me that would like to think that the reason the wedding happened in Paris was so you could go see Wembenyama, <laughs> not the other way around. But that, that's really funny. <laughs> oh, but the funny thing is, so in September of last year, I went and I went to the two games prior to him going to to Las Vegas, and he had some good games, and then. The big game in, in Vegas against Scoot. She watched that on ESPN, and now it made me look like a genius. Like, whoa, you knew this <laughs> ahead of everybody. This kid is really good. But he's 7'5". I mean, they got him at like 7'4". But he's 7'5 in shoes, like a 7'9 wingspan. I mean, I think the dude can like dunk on his tiptoes. 
and he's a he's not your 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 center, not your back to the basket center. He's not Rick Smith, and, and no offense to Rick Smith, but he's just as tall, but he's agile. He moves like a wing. He can shoot. He can shoot threes. There's one clip. I'm sure you've seen it on social media where he shot a step back three, missed it, and got his own tip dunk. <laughs> and we haven't even talked about the defensive end of the floor where he's a guy that just pretty much can make everybody around your team a good defender because he can clean up their mistakes. So one I got for you, Rafael, is say the Pacers stay put. You know, they don't give up any picks. They don't move around. Who are some guys in that back end of the first round? You know, the Pacers got 26 pick, 29 pick. 32nd pick in the, in the second round, which is the second pick of the second round. Who are some guys you think in that range um, you would take a chance on to potentially be like, you know, at that range of the draft, usually those guys are maybe rotation players, potentially starters? Well, one, do you guys think that they're going to keep all the picks? No, I don't. No, I don't think so. But I was just saying, I guess for the sake of the scenario, um, you know, if yeah. they keep one of them in that range, you know, is there a guy you think that they should target or a couple of guys that, that would help this team? Yeah, I mean, I can think of some guys that could help, but this draft is so fluid. I think, mm. I mean, anywhere from 15 through 25 or maybe even – 20 through 35, I think there's not a lot of a difference. I think it's just going to be an acquired taste. I think Indiana will, will probably look at some forwards, even though they can just go best player available, but some forwards that could potentially be available. Maybe Chris Murray. I think he could be in that range. I mean, he's not a guy that people think has a, a great upside because he's 22 and he'll be 23 on draft night, but if he's you know, 75% of his twin brother, Keegan, then that's that's a steal late late in the first round. Um, Derek Whitehead could be someone the Pacers could take a chance on. A lot of people had him as a top five pick prior to the season, had a, a foot injury that kind of limited what he could do this year. But he shot like 40, I want to say he shot like 43% from three or something like that. And if he actually kind of reminds a lot of people of Lance Stevenson. And so I've heard the comparison to, like, Lance Stevenson with grade A character. So if you get that, that's definitely a win. Um, Don't say that name too, too loud in Indianapolis. They're trying to build a statue <laughs> for him, man. Did a piece last year, and I was saying, hey, he's not going to be on the team this upcoming season, and I was going to get right out of town. So that name is very sensitive. You can't come after legends, James. I know, man. And Lance is a great dude. He is so. awesome. <laughs> yep. And he plays his best basketball in a Pacers uniform. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes sense. Julian Strother is another person that could come in and provide some shooting. Shot 41% from three at Gonzaga. Noah Clowney is he, he's a little raw. He's only 18 years old. Was mm-hmm. at um, Alabama this year. Another guy that just kind of flew under the radar in high school and put himself in position to be a first-round pick. He's 6'10", can – I would say that he should be able to develop into a reliable outside shooter. Didn't shoot great, but the touch is there. And then another player that I think could definitely be in that range is someone that really made himself a lot of money here at the Combine is Olivier Maxence Prosper from Marquette. I, I just call him Max. And I thought he was the best player at the combine. If you hear noise in the background, it's because I'm, I'm at the arena. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> I was there last year, man. I miss it so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Trace Jackson Davis. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Raphael, like what's your scout on, on him and Jalen hood Shafino to kind of go local with, with our prospects? So I like Jackson Davis. I like him a lot. I think that people are paying more attention to what he doesn't do as opposed to what he does well. And what he can't do or doesn't do is space the floor. And in the NBA today, everybody loves bigs that can space the floor. But Jackson Davis is really underrated. I mean, he's been productive for four years in the Power Five Conference. He rebounds. He blocks shots. Is an incredible passer. I think he's like one of the most underrated passers in, in, in this draft class. And he just doesn't really mess around the rim. So I like him a lot. Hood Shafino, I actually bumped into him yesterday at a private workout. He's a big dude. Mm-hmm. That's, he's, 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 he's a big dude. I like him a lot. I did hear someone ask about what position does he play. For me, I think he's a point guard, but 
someone just kind of expressed, is there an NBA team that's going to give him that type of freedom to play in the pick and roll that he got at Indiana? And they're wondering how he translates if he's in a system where he's not the primary ball handler. But I like him a lot, and I felt like the the Purdue game made him uh, – <laughs> It helped him out a lot. I should, I just say that much. So speaking of Purdue, what are your thoughts on Zach Eady? I believe he still is kind of weighing whether he'll stay in the draft or go back to school. But, I mean, National Player of the Year, but how difficult do you think the transition will be if he goes the route of trying to play in the NBA? I personally think that pick-and-roll defense is going to be something that he really gets exploited at. Yeah, I think so also. Um, but I don't think – an NBA team is going to put him out there for 20, 30 minutes per game. I think he can be someone that can come in and provide an, an impact and spot minutes here and there. I actually talked to someone that worked out uh, against him, and they were saying, like, they got killed on, on defense, not because of they were guarding Zach, it's because he set massive screens and their man was scoring. And so the guy was basically saying, like, I look bad in my workout defensively because the guy that I was defending was on Zach Eady's team. And I just kept running into a brick wall and the guy kept getting open looks. But I've heard that he's – I know he has a pro day coming up in uh, probably about an hour or two. But I've heard – this is just the, the buzz around here is that he has a, a massive NIL offer and he's probably going to go back to Purdue. But that's just the, the buzz around here. Well, you've definitely uh, raised some eyebrows and perked some interest of, of our Purdue audience uh, with, with, the, with the rumor <laughs> mill there. Again, obviously nothing finalized, but uh, appreciate the insight in that regard. Um, last, pres- last prospect on my end – Another player that's within the Pacers range that I'm not sure if I'm fully sold on yet, but I want to get your thoughts on him. What's your takeaways in your scouting report out of Grady Dick out of Kansas? Shooter. <laughs> that's that's what you're getting. You're getting a guy that provides gravity. I mean, he opens the lane because you can't leave him, especially in the corner. He didn't test very well. It's weird. He's a, he's one of the guys that he didn't test well, but he's. He has functional athleticism that translates in games. There are plenty of guys, especially, you know, here at the Combine, they test it incredibly, but it doesn't translate to games. So Dick is a a good shooter. He's a better – he's more than a shooter. I think he's a pretty good cutter, and he has good positional size. Many to work on the defensive end, but, you know, shooting is so valued in today's NBA, and he's a guy that complements your star. And I think – at you know, outside of the top two, maybe three picks in this draft, everybody else is going to be a complimentary player that is supposed to make life easier for your star. And I think Dick would be one of the, the best role players in this draft. Real quick to pivot to the NBA playoffs. You know, Lakers down 0-2, getting spooky out there, you know, out west. And then you got, you know, game two tonight. What are your takes so far on both series? And I guess – more specifically towards tonight, what can Boston do to make sure they're not in the same position that the Lakers are in right now? I'll be honest, I have not watched any games. <laughs> <laughs> they have pro days going on in, in the evenings and time. I mean, you were here, you know how it is. You look mm-hmm. up and it's like, it's, it's 8 o'clock. <laughs> so I've only seen just little bits and pieces. So I'll just be honest, I can't give you a fair assessment. But just from what I've seen, it just sounds like Boston needs to find a way to stop playoff Jimmy. Playoff Jimmy Butler is a totally different guy than he is in the regular season. This is true. This is true. Let me ask you this maybe better question. What does your day look like when you're evaluating these guys, you know, because I know it starts relatively early, not super early, but early enough. And like you said, you're you're there the entire time. You're, you know, cutting podcasts, you're doing interviews, you're doing stuff off the record, on the record. So what does the day look like for you? And for anyone out there, I guess, interested, how did you even get in this lane to uh, be in a position where you're, I would imagine, you know, living that dream? Yeah, I, I thought of how the day uh, the day works for me, and maybe this may discourage some people, but <laughs> <laughs> I've been waking up at 6. I try to get some stuff done, and I, I got a wife and a 10-month-old at home, so I try to call them for a few minutes, and then – it's like you go to the to lobby of the hotel connected to the arena, you're, you're networking, you run into somebody, you end up talking for 10 minutes, somebody else, and then the game starts. 
And then um, there's pro days, there's interviews, and then after that I have to do podcasts. I got radio appearances. So to be honest with you, I've left the arena every night at around 12.30 a.m., and then I'm back up here around 9. So I haven't had much time to do much, but it's like, you know, I'm like a kid at a candy store, you know. I mean, you've been here, so you see yeah. different executives, people that you've only seen from afar on TV, and now they're five feet from you. And and for me, it's been interesting to find out, like, who listens to my podcast or who reads my articles. So it's been a great experience, but I'm, I'm ready to get home and get some sleep. <laughs> and how I got involved or was just content. Like I tell people all the time is that, if you want to work in sports as a scout or a writer or whatever, your content is your resume. You have to mm-hmm. put out a ridiculous amount of content. And I tell people, if you just put out two articles a week, that is enough to get you, what, eight a month? Mm-hmm. And over a year or two, now you have a couple hundred articles, a couple hundred, you know, whatever on your resume, articles, scouting reports. And so I just say content, content, content. And in today's world which is totally different than it was when I was in college or whatever, you can put all your content online and it can reach anybody. I mean, you can start a podcast, YouTube channel, whatever, but you just got to be consistent. And so that's how I got here. I was consistent and I put out a lot of work. Raphael, one more question before I let you go. For Victor Wimanyama with all the pressure that's on him, you mentioned that it's going to be very hard for him to exceed expectations. What would be a successful first year in your mind? Like a reasonable, successful first year for him? You know what? I, I struggle with this. I, I give you an example. So when he came to to Vegas to play against Scoot, and I was in Paris the two games before, so I thought, you know what? If he puts up 15, 10, and three blocks and knocks down a jumper, and then he'll quiet the doubters well he only averaged like 36 and a half points in those two games and i think he had a game where he made like five threes i think they said that he had five threes and five blocks in the game and it's only been done one time in nba history and danny green was the only player to do that so that's a little trivia for you so i thought i'd have to say this part of me wants to say oh if he averages 14 and eight and three blocks and, and the Spurs, you know, improved by 15 games. That's a success, but I don't know. He could average 18 and 11 and three and then the Spurs could be in the play. And I don't know. I mean, it's just hard. I tried to like limit my expectations and he's exceeded them every single time. No, you you say he's a Hall of Famer right now, <laughs> Rafi. That's that's what Twitter is telling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, did you see the one where they said if he's Durant or Elijah Wan, then it's it's a failure? That, that kind of yeah, I was thinking, wow, you know, it would be such a failure to be a champion, a Hall of Famer, top seventy-five. Yes, that would just be a complete bust. But um, Rafael, man, thank you for your time. You know, safe travels and everything going on with your side of things on the on the scouting side, podcasting side, big board side. We appreciate your time, man. We'll chop it up soon. Yep, anytime. Let me know. I'll make it happen. All right, man. You have a good one. That was Rafael Barlow covering the NBA at large and his own platform, NBA um, Big Board. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd with Eddie Garrison. All you know is exactly what to play. For every guest that we have <laughs> on the Fan Midday Show, Pat Boylan joining us here on the Fan. You know him as Indiana Pacers radio host and sideline reporter, whether it's right here on the Fan, whether it's with Bally. Of course, he fills in very frequently on the play-by-play side for both radio and TV. And he's the play-by-play voice of the WNBA's Indiana Fever, who get their season started tonight. Pat, always appreciate you making time for us. Always glad Eddie was able to take care of you there with the rejoiner. But as we start this conversation, you were always, a, at least for me anyway, on Twitter, a voice of reason, a voice to be able to kind of put things in perspective and and talk me down when I'm like, ah, this is crazy. Can't believe this happened. Not the worst outcome that could have happened for the Pacers, despite the fact that mine and James hashtag Wemby to Indy t-shirts, uh, we had to cancel that order. Not the worst thing that could have happened with the draft lottery. <laughs> 
No, and obviously the lottery comes from a prism. And, and by the way, uh, before I say that, good to join both of you and Eddie, as always, uh, with the appropriate bump music. We get used to that during the Pacers season, uh, his terrific skill set there, but good to be with both of you. Um, you know, when you, when you have a lottery, obviously everyone's interested in jumping up, and that's the whole focus of it, and especially when you have – a potential uh, player uh, that has that could do for a franchise what Victor Wembanyama wants to do. It almost feels like you either move up or it's a failure. And I do understand the mindset of that. It's of course out of your control. Uh, the Pacers had a, a little less than a one in three shot of moving into the top four. Uh, their chances of being number one were about seven percent. So you you knew going into it that it was unlikely, but that it was possible. And yes, when you have a generational potential talent like that, when you don't move up to number one, totally understand the disappointment. As I was watching the lottery unfold live, like all of you were, you're watching everybody kind of stay put behind you, which is good news as they unveil from 14 up because it means no one has jumped. And it also means uh, that your chances each time no one jumps uh, goes up a little bit higher. So I think there was a lot of anticipation when no one had jumped and the Pacers spot was coming up at seven that maybe you wouldn't see their name. Um, but when you consider a few factors, and, and first of all, that being that number one pick goes west, right? So you're not going to, if he is that generational talent that many people think he is, uh, it's not something you're facing in the Eastern Conference very likely for the next decade plus. So that's a good thing. Um, if the Pacers weren't going to be in those top four slots, if they weren't going to hit the lottery, um, their chances of being seven uh, were actually not all that great. They had a better chance of being eight or nine than they did of seven. So um, for the non-hitting the lottery standpoint, it was about best case scenario. You know, if, if Wembenyama ends up in Detroit and maybe the team right behind you or right in front of you in the lottery jumps up and you don't, then you're really looking at the other day as a bummer. Um, it wasn't a big success because you didn't move into the top four, but I would make the case that for not moving into the top four, it was about best case scenario. So, Patty Ice. <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> I don't know if you want that new nickname, but... Um, James is making t-shirts left and right. He's got I one know, for you. I'm getting everything you know, uh, <laughs> shipped and ready to go, but Pat... In all seriousness, how important do you think this pick is, considering where the Pacers are, the growth we've seen from Halliburton, Benedict Mather in his rookie season, and just the value of that pick, considering I don't think that they're going to be in this position of picking the lottery maybe too much longer as soon as possibly next season? I'll pass on the nickname, although I have heard worse. <laughs> you know, I, the, the hope is certainly that, right? Like that this is the last time that you're picking – in the lottery or at least um, in the top 10. And I think if you get this right, that helps you potentially continue on that mission. If you're not picking in the top 10 next year, it means you've taken that ne next step forward. And I, I kind of felt like going into this Pacers season that a really good scenario would be that Tyrese Halliburton takes a, a, a leap forward and he did. That Benedict Matherin looks like the type of player you can build around and he did. That Miles Turner chose what he was talking about for a few years, that if you give him that center role, uh, that he can show things that he hasn't been able to do. And he did. Um, and if all those things could happen and you made the playoffs great, um, but if all those things happened and you still uh, ended up drafting in the top 10 and had the potential to get another top tier talent in there, that that really could be impactful on the future. I think it's, it's of course, too early to know what Matherin is going to be, but I think so far – fair to call that pick a success and when you consider what the Pacers were able to do uh, much later there with Andrew Nemhard, uh, that draft looks great right now and I think you're potentially one more strong draft away from really feeling like you have a core and a nucleus but there's a lot of ways to build this and through trades and through free agency are also there and I think one of the intriguing dynamics at play here is where do the Pacers actually end up picking? Because Kevin Pritchard made the comment at the end of the season that he doesn't necessarily want to bring five rookies into this group, and he probably doesn't have the roster space to do so anyway. So because of the trade scenarios and because of the Pacers having four picks in the top 32 uh, and three first-round draft picks, I think it could set up for a pretty interesting draft night. And if the Pacers actually end up selecting in those spots or not, 
I would guess that Kevin Pritchard would be one of the more active uh, president general managers on draft night just because of how much he has. And I think if you get this right, um, it's a massive step in what you've been building so far over the last couple of years pretty successfully. Pat Bullen with us of the Pacers radio network and of Bally Sports as well as the TV voice of the Indiana Fever. Pat, you kind of walked into my next question. I understand we're all just guessing at this point, but I, we've read the same quotes in the regard that it'd probably be a little surprising if they walk away utilizing every one of these picks. When you look at where this team is at, how will they balance out what they could add with trading those picks to get a player or, or another piece that's already in the league right now versus potentially moving up in the draft? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, and I think James was still on the beat when Kevin Pritchard made a comparison of where the Pacers were to a ship and having a lot of different directions that that ship could go um, because of the trade that they made for Tyrese Halliburton, and I still feel like that path is pretty wide. Like, I don't think they've narrowed down on any uh, specific particular angle. He's talked before, you know, about the fact that he loved to try to take a big swing like the Cleveland Cavaliers were able to do with Donovan Mitchell, you need all of the circumstances to come together and much of that out of your control. But to have the type of assets in place to potentially do that if those circumstances do come together, I think he's talked about it. He said it's something that you know he'd like to be able to consider down the line. And so I don't know that there's necessarily one specific angle to how you approach those. You know, I think in general – you're building a young core here that has um, a fair amount of talent. You obviously need veterans to do that. Um, I, I think the Pacers are in a spot where maybe they'd be a little bit more comfortable adding a veteran this year than they were last year. As you know, they saw when Tyrese Halliburton was healthy, they were a pretty good team. They were in sixth before he had that injury, um, which kept him out nearly a month. But that said, I still think um, ideally, you know, you're building around this young and talented core that you have and that you still have an eye on the future and that you don't want to make a move that necessarily locks you into lowering your ceiling. I think that's something that's so intriguing about where the paces are right now is their ceiling is still really, really high. They have to do a lot to get there, um, but it is really high. So, uh, to, you know, not to not answer your question here, but frankly, I don't know. And I right. think that's what makes this offseason intriguing is that I think there's a lot of avenues that the Pacers could go down. And when you look at some of the moves they've made over the course of the last few years, or or really even when you look at the history of this franchise, they often make moves that are unexpected, that come out of left field that you wouldn't have guessed. You know, who would have guessed the Pacers would have been in the James Harden deal with uh, Victor Oladipo trade? Who would have guessed that the DeMontis Sabonis Tyrese Halliburton thing uh, would have happened in the first place. So uh, when you're a Pacers fan, you kind of know to expect the unexpected, but I do think there's certainly scenarios out there where you're looking um, at potentially players that are already in the league that could help you right now, as well as if that's not available, trying to use those picks to move up. Uh, we'll just see, but optionality is a word that he likes and the Pacers have a ton of it here as they get closer in on draft night. So pivoting from Pacers to Fever, Got a season opener tonight. Obviously, they're in a position, too, where they're moving in a new direction. Have some, a lot of exciting things going on. Debut for head coach Christy Sides. Debut for number one pick Aaliyah Boston. Debut for Grace Berger. Obviously, you want to see some growth from Alyssa Smith. So, um, I guess focusing on Aaliyah, what have you seen from her so far as a person and as a player? And what does she give this, you know, this team as far as hope and belief that things can you know, change and move in the right direction? Well, it's so fascinating about Aaliyah Boston, and for those who don't know, the Fever's first-ever number one pick, and the Pacers haven't had one, so in a way, the two franchises' first-ever number one overall pick. Uh, one thing that's so fascinating about her is just the moment you get the chance to meet her, you talk with her for the first time, she's got the poise, she's got an aura about her of like a 10-year vet. She's so well-spoken. I think she's going to be a leader right away, and I think her skill set gives her the potential to be a franchise-altering type of player. It's still extremely early, but she's also not somebody that you necessarily worry about um, putting high expectations on her because she is so mature and poised. You would never guess, you know, that she's in her early 20s. 
based on talking to her. And the hope here, I think, with the fever is that you're doing something. I, I do really think there are a lot of parallels with the fever and the Pacers. Now, the Pacers have, uh, you know, this potential point guard in Tyrese Halliburton that you're building around and, and is hopefully one day a superstar. I think he's certainly closing in on that. And you're already talking about him in the star category. With the fever, you're building a little bit more with the front court. You have the number two pick in Melissa Smith last year, the number one pick in Aaliyah Boston this year. So that front court has two top two picks in the last two years, uh, and, and they're very likely going to take the floor here in the starting lineup in, uh, in what, five and a half hours or so. And so I, I think there's a lot of intrigue just about the potential of this group, and are they ready to you know, push for the top half of the WNBA? Well, there was a lot of turnover, so I, I guess nothing's out of consideration, but you're building bigger picture here, and I think Aaliyah Boston is somebody – um, that you know the city will get to know very well in the way that they got to know Tamika over those years, and I think you can only hope that she has a similar impact. And and for those uh, you know who are, who are still considering what to do here with their Friday night, um, we are expecting close to if not a sellout, but there are still tickets available uh, for the game tonight. The season opener is tonight against Connecticut, and you only have one chance to watch the number one pick play in her first ever game. Pat, how will they navigate through this season when you look at, as you mentioned, a very, very young roster, nine players that are either with one year of experience or on their rookie deal and making their debut tonight? How does that change the way they navigate the WNBA season and kind of where their barometer is for judging this roster on a night-to-night basis? Yeah, I think it makes the uh, the future really exciting because you've got that much young talent. They're kind of like a college all-star team of the last couple of years. Um, but also, you're going to have moments where reality sets in. And I remember having a lot of those same conversations around Pacer season. You've got a team that night in and night out is going to be the less experienced team. Um, and first-year head coach in Christy Sides, who has just a wealth of experience as an assistant coach, um, but she's going about this, too, for the first time. So there's going to be lear- there's going to be growth. There's going to be learning curves. There's going to be bumps in the road. Um, but I think the hope here is that what you've started to build, and this has been Lynn Dunn, who's been building it the last couple of years, Lynn Dunn, whose name is hanging in the rafters as the head coach of the championship team in 2012 and uh, guided the Fever to uh, a finals appearance in 2009 as well, uh, that you're building something you know bigger here for the long term. But in the near future, I think a realistic expectation this year is to hope to see some serious strides with some understanding that this team is still extremely young, that, you know, you're building around a number one pick who is a rookie and number two overall pick uh, who is a second year player. They do have Kelsey Mitchell, who's really starting to enter her prime here and is one of the league's premier guards. And I think she'll be really important. And I think There also are some parallels to the Pacers in that uh, Emma Cannon is a player in the front court who I think will take a lot of that James Johnson type role in the locker room with her leadership. Um, Those two remind me a lot of each other. So the hope is a a lot of excitement that you see bursts of potential, but uh, you know, realistically it's a team, um, you know, that finished at the bottom last year, drafted high again. And I think the hope is that you start to see um, some of those flashes of what, this team can be not only this year, but going into future seasons. Pat, one thing that I've noticed just as a WNBA fan, fan of women's basketball in general, is how difficult it is to be on an opening day roster in this league. Can you speak to just the accomplishment that is for the women on the fever who, you know, whatever path they had to take to get there to get to an opening day roster when there's 144 spots and a lot more talented players who may even deserve a chance at those spots as well? Yeah, when you think about it, it's 144 spots, and it's actually technically even less than that because, for example, the, the Fever are playing a team in the Connecticut Sun tonight who are only rostering 11 because they hit their salary cap at 11, so they're not even at 12. Uh, that number is probably closer to 140, and, and you see the headlines that come out, and you've got really talented players and really tough decisions to make, and I think one of the toughest challenges is each team can keep up to 12, and so you have to have players that either you're confident are going to, to be impactful right now 
or you're really confident that they are going to be in the future, you don't have the ability to put somebody in a 13th, 14th, 15th roster spot. And frankly, you know, the, uh, the new CBA in the NBA, I think, allows up to now a third two-way mm-hmm. player. So it's just it's such a drastically and dramatic difference uh, between what it takes to make an NBA roster and what it takes to make a WNBA roster. It's, it's probably the hardest professional league in the world to make. There's so much talent sitting out there. It makes you know this time of the year training camp, which has come to a close, but the last week or so really difficult for the general managers. The league has talked a lot about expansion. I think getting a couple more teams in there um, would be a big boost, and potentially getting uh, you know another an extra roster spot or two extra would make a big difference. But it's an exciting time for women's basketball. I think we saw a lot of this in the the women's tournament, but because you have so much talent that it's disappointing. You have to cut these players. But when I started doing this eight, nine years ago, you didn't have this much outcry because there probably wasn't quite this much talent. So in a big picture outlook, it's a good thing for women's basketball that there's this much talent and hopefully the league continues to grow with all of that talent. Pat, I know it's a game day for you. We'll let you go. I appreciate you making time for us. I do want to leave you with one last shout out though. Uh, if you haven't got a chance to do it, go to youtube.com slash Pacers. The latest episode of the sideline guys, your conversation with Roy Hibbert, uh, you and Jeremiah Johnson, the 10 year anniversary of the block. Uh, that, that was great to, to get Roy's historical perspective on that being in that moment. And you know, always appreciate all the work that you guys are doing they're on that podcast and your work of course with the fever and the pacers yeah that conversation was a lot of fun i appreciate you shouting that out for those who haven't got the chance to hear it we sat down with roy uh for about 40 minutes or so james congratulations in order to you as well and and uh jimmy i hope to hear uh sometime here in the not too distant future about a promotion for you as well (laughs) i appreciate you pat you're too kind my friend looking forward to the game tonight take care gentlemen that's pat boylan you know him right here on the Pacers Radio Network as well as on Bally Sports covering the Pacers and then, of course, the TV voice of the Indiana Fever as they tip off their 24th season of Fever basketball a little bit later this evening. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. It is Fast Friday here on the Fan. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, and Eddie Garrison. We welcome our next guest in... <laughs> It is the legend himself, Greg Rakestraw, and and Rake. We're chuckling here because I, I need I need to bring you in on the joke because Eddie um, and his girlfriend Liv just got a new dog named Joey, and Joey is in transit right now. Eddie showed me a picture of the dog, and they're bringing it here to Indianapolis. And that conversation was about five minutes ago, and then we come back and we hear your track report. We're getting ready for you, and Eddie gets off the phone and he puts you on hold, ready to go. And Eddie says. He just threw up in the car. <laughs> and, I, and me and James go, Rake? Rake just threw up in the car? Car base not until next week. What are we talking about? Like, no, no, it was the dog. So I just want to confirm you're good. There's been no uh, uh, projectile action from you today. You're, you're, you're full health and sound mind, correct? Well, you know, this is one of many shows I've appeared on on the fan today. And when my day started, uh, I was pounding Zimas with, uh, with Jake Query and, and, and Kevin Bowen. So... Um, if this had been 94 and there had been that level of Zima consumption, and I would have been listening to the same song you just played coming out, by the way, uh, in terms of Humpty Hump, um, there may have been some vomiting in the car. Uh, but but I, I tend to live my life like a monk these days. I so rarely drink alcohol because, you know, I'm, I'm mid-40s. I'm tired of my own bullets. I need alcohol to help me on that front. So I have not had a drop today. There has been no vomiting as I'm about two-thirds of the way through my work day. But, but thank you for asking. And the next update in terms of the Eddie Garrison personal life needs to be Eddie proposing to her before before that wises up and moves on. So I've already had this conversation with Eddie numerous times on the air and off the air that you've got two plays here. Propose or knock her up. Either one of those would work. Um, The dog is a nice step, but it's time to get serious. Any, 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 any response there? You just want to move right along. Uh, you can move right along. Okay. It's a conversation we've had. <laughs> you couldn't tell I have you on speakerphone because my voice is loud and it carries. So like all of us in the media suite here on the third floor is reacting along with this. So Brendan Fantastic. King, Kurt Darling, and Nick, and John the Engineer, who I literally just met today, are all in agreement. One of those two options, Eddie, is the play for you. 
All right, Eddie, you know the mission. You can choose to accept it or not. That's up to you. Uh, Goodness gracious. As we pivot uh, back to the track, and speaking of things that would probably make me go the way of of Eddie's new dog, Joey, a lot of high-velocity speeds. Takuma Sato showing speeds we haven't seen since 1996. We'll power with the four-lap average right now. Uh, Take us through what all you've seen out there on Fast Friday, Greg. It's, it's been fast. It has lived up to the moniker. So, And again, because of the conditions being cool and because of the combination of cloud cover or things I don't often reference in terms of sports broadcasts, wildfires in western Alberta. Uh, it's been hazy here the last couple of days. It's warm out there at 80, but there's not going to be a big difference in track temperature, say, now at 1 o'clock versus what 5 o'clock is going to be. So guys have largely been lined up until this recent yellow uh, for track inspection, which I basically think is like a break because it's been two straight hours of on-track activity. So it's it's one thing to do one lap fast. What it really is is something to do four laps fast in a row. So Takuma Sato had a flyer going. His first lap, 234.7. His third lap kind of got a little loose, a little squirrely coming out of turn number two, which obviously because of the wind today coming out of the south is a place where some cars you know can get loose. So you had to back out of it. You only have a chance to kind of complete that four-lap average. But you combine Takuma's attitude with Gadassi technology, it's not surprising he is really quick at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The guy that has had the fastest four laps put together is Will Power. Um, his fastest time is in the 233s. His four-lap average is in the 232s. And so given how good the weather conditions are going to be tomorrow, we've got rain coming in tonight. Um, it's going to be cool tomorrow, but dry. I think the speed you are seeing now will likely be matched with what we have tomorrow. So I think you're going to be looking at two, you know, basically to be in the fast 12, which is what you want to be at at the end of the day tomorrow at 550. You're going to need to be in the 232 to 233 four-lap average just to be in the first four rows for the upcoming Indianapolis 500-mile race. Greg, you touched on it a bit there, but what can you say about just the field and the competition level knowing what's on the line with these opportunities they have to set themselves up for success you know, in this race? First of all, I'm just happy the fact that the Romeoville kids asked me about racing places. <laughs> best places to watch high school basketball games. James, you are a true Hoosier now, whether you want to admit it or not. Google gobble, you are one of us. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Indy 500 questions. <laughs> I've even forgotten your question. Ask that again if you don't mind. Yeah, what is the field looking like to, as far as you're shaping it up the competition level, knowing that this could, you know, if you're able to have some fast laps, this could set you up for success down the line, obviously in, in the Indy 500. Well, this is, you know, we have talked about the depth of the field seemingly for the last 20 years around here. And it's interesting that you'll read an occasional article in the month of May because there's 34 car and driver combinations. So one team is going home This isn't the glory days of the 500 where there were 70, 80 entrants and 33 made the field. No, we haven't had that in a long time. Some years we've had bumping, other years we haven't. We've filled the field of 33 each year, but at the same time, the series has never been deeper. You know, there are 27 full-time car and driver combinations that are running events this year, And, and maybe there's been years like that in the past, but it's been a long time. And of those 27 different teams that are competing on a week-in, week-out basis, I think 15 to 20 have a legitimate chance of winning when they show up and and roll off the truck at a racetrack. And so if that's the case, that's the kind of the same number we're looking at here. So if two-thirds of the field have a legitimate shot of winning the race, then we're going to be set up for a really good race next Sunday. And frankly, I would say it's been a long time that any of us left 16th and Georgetown on a race day Sunday and said, that wasn't a very good 500. We've been saying they've been great 500s for the better part of the last 10, 15, 20 years. And James, I have no doubt I'll feel the same way at the conclusion of business next Sunday afternoon. Greg Rakestraw with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Rake, when you look at team by team, where's been the most dominant so far today on Fast Friday? You know, the great thing is is that it's that it's not been. You know, the Ganassi cars were the two fastest yesterday. The Ganassi team seems to be maybe the most, you know, solid all around bunch. But obviously you've got Errol McLaren that is I wouldn't say making great strides. They're now amongst the top teams week in, week out of the IndyCar series. They've got the seventh and eighth fastest cars so far. The the Penske cars have been great 
seemingly everywhere but here the last couple of years. Really kind of been non-factors, which is stunning uh, for you know for a Penske-led team. Well, they've got the third and fourth quickest cars today. You know, you've got Sato in the fourth Ganassi machine that has the fastest lap. You've got Renus VK, and it's been a bit of a rough year for Ed Carpenter Racing. VK's got the second quickest speed. The one that is the head-scratcher in a good way, Benjamin Peterson, who is a rookie for A.J. Foyt, and they are sadly at this point are kind of one of the, the backmarker teams in the paddock. He had the sixth fastest lap, and he had set up a very good three-lap average, and I'm not exactly sure the reasoning why. I like to kind of pull back on the fourth lap and not kind of reveal the cards as to exactly everything that number 55 car and A.J. Foyt team had, but the fact they've got a top-10 car really catches your attention. So there's not been a dominant team. It's been very balanced. We're just back to green flag activity, so likely there's going to be some, some new teams and new speeds coming out here in the next few minutes this is really the last test day if you will and i and i use that word lightly because they're still going as fast as they can they're trying to push everything you know full throttle for for lack of a better term when you look at the balance between these teams and the aggression that they're willing to show on fast friday versus what is going to be on display when it really matters for quals this weekend wh- where is that balance for these drivers if at all I don't think anybody's holding much of anything back, to be honest with you, uh, just because there is such depth in the field. Like, for example, the car that's on the track right now is Kyle Kirkwood, second-year driver from Andretti Autosport. He won at Long Beach a couple of races ago. He's just posted back-to-back laps of 233 miles an hour. Um, And so I think there is such parity up and down the, the, the pit lane that you can't be much of a poker player and hold your cards back. You know, everything that you are trying to do tomorrow is to get into that top 12, to be able to then qualify for the fast 12 and then fast 6 on Sundays. They've got two different sessions in the way that this is going to be laid out, you know, this coming year. So um, I'm not sure going to hold much back, you know. <laughs> and if you're not fast today, again, fast is a relative term. 230 miles an hour is fast. For this field, it is slow. Um, you know, if you're in that range, you're trying to figure something out. You're trying to avoid – you know, kind of that last row uh, and, and kind of those slowest cars to avoid the bumping process. Um, but, but really, I don't think there's much of holding anything back in terms of this Friday afternoon session. So, Greg, I am learning as I go. Obviously, this is a lot to take in. <laughs> um, but I do plan on – I was saying this last time I was on air. I'm hoping to get to my first Indy 500 here soon soak it in, you know, and just have the Hoosier have experience yeah. continue. I mean, Greg was the reason I went to Newcastle and saw Ben Davis and, you know, had all that went to the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah. So I'm like checking every box as, as soon as I can. So that'll be fun. But um, just to pivot here to what I'm doing professionally, I guess, which is covering the Colts, pays the bills, pretty fun job. Sure. Um, Greg, what is your excitement level to cover a guy like Anthony Richardson. I know he's the guy that everyone is super excited about here in town. And what was your impressions of him? Because you've seen some great high school athletes play in that stadium, great Colts players play in that stadium, and now they're hoping to have an, another one play on that field. Well, it's, it's, it's a couple of things. From a short-term standpoint, I'm not going to lie, as the preseason television voice of the team, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to calling a bunch of his games because generally the rookie <laughs> – uh, you know, gets to play a lot more in the mm-hmm. preseason. Keeps it interesting that way. People are going to be tuning in. We're playing to a big room. We only get to televise two of the preseason games because the third preseason game goes to Amazon Prime. I get to see the first one in Buffalo. I get to see the next one at home the next week, and then I'll, I'll go back to radio. So from a selfish standpoint, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> but, but it's almost, James, the same thing that I would see before they decided whom they were going to pick or whom fell to them at four. I'm just happy there's a plan. And, and, and I don't fault any of the decisions that were made the last four years. I understand the logic behind every one of them. To make the transition from after you tried Brissett for a year and it didn't work, you went with Philip Rivers because there's somebody you knew. He ended up walking after one year. You went with Wentz. You felt it was the best option. That didn't work. You went with Ryan. You felt that was the best option. That didn't work. Now we've got more than a one- or two-year filler here in place. The, 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 the situation dictated you're going to go younger here, and they did. Um, obviously, virtually everything we have heard about Anthony Richardson as a person and as a personality has been great so far. Um, the, the obvious athletic gifts that he has 
are jaw-dropping. It's just a matter of learning as we go. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of the talk the last few weeks has obviously been, hey, he's going to get the opportunity to win this job for week one at training camp up at Grand Park in Westfield. So I'm thrilled to see how the process goes. I feel the need even internally, let alone for Colts fans, just to say, folks, there's going to be mistakes here. Um, and, and the bar is set so ridiculously high because of what Peyton Manning was able to do long-term, what Andrew Luck was able to do long-term. But let's serve a bit of a history lesson here. You know, 25 years ago, Peyton Manning threw more interceptions than touchdowns in year number one. What Andrew Luck did with largely rookies around him to win 11 games his first year is stupefying. I don't think that's going to happen again, to be blunt. He's going to make mistakes because he is so green as a prospect. But if Colts fans can have patience along the way, I do think that that greatness is possible because I'm liking everything I'm seeing about him as a person, and I'm liking everything I'm seeing about him as an athlete. It's just going to take some time to figure things out as the game hits a warp speed level once you get to the National Football League. Greg Rigstraw with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Rake, we had Lair Overton in here yesterday, and we had an opportunity to have a conversation with Colts defensive end Quiddy Pay. Obviously, a lot of adversity overcoming injuries throughout the season last year kind of plagued him and his inability to really get consistency out of, out of what he wanted last season. When you look at where he's at in terms of his tenure with this team, still just a couple years removed from when he was drafted in the 21 draft, and, and how imperative it's going to be to have guys on the edge to set the tone and try to limit or impact any way they can this QB arms race that's taking place within the AFC, where is your bar for him, and, and, and what, what are your expectations for Quiddy Pay and the rest of those up in the trenches for the Colts this fall? You know, I think for Quiddy, you know, I think we saw in, what, a, a two-thirds dose of the season, he can be a difference maker. Uh, it's just a matter of staying healthy. Uh, and, and a lot of that were things were out of his control um, in, in terms of kind of freak injuries that hampered him. But, uh, you know, I, I have fewer questions defensively than I do offensively. Obviously, in terms of a defense, I think we feel better about the, the front six or front seven, maybe the back end, and, and we'll see how those young cornerbacks progress. Now that Stephon Gilmore is not there. But, but Quiddy has been solid, not spectacular. Um, and, and coming out, I'm not sure if maybe even spectacular was expected. Um, if, if he can kind of maintain the pace he's on and hopefully improve that and just be able to be out there for 16, 17 games in terms of him specifically, I think, the, I think he'll be all right and he'll be a guy that it is a more downs than not defensive end for this football team. Greg, how cool is it for you to see it kind of come full circle with Juju Brents? Emil Ekior is also here as well. Um, you know, that potential, Juju, that is, to face off against David Bell when the Colts host the Browns in Week 7. So, I don't know, does it make you age you a little bit or does it make you seem like it's, you're grateful to still be doing it? Oh, brother, I, I, I've hit that a long ago at this point. Um, <laughs> I, I called Krishan Hogan's games in high school, college, and the pros. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and, and seeing a guy like Jack Doyle, I called some of his games at Cathedral. Uh, and and, and Brantz is a guy that I will can kind of compare to Doyle because there were so many talented players in that Warren Central program, namely David Bell, that's the guy you talked about most. You didn't talk about Brents as much. He was a really good player, but he was not the guy that got the majority of attention. And sometimes there are those guys that you see on a Friday night and you go, that guy's going to play on a Sunday. Like, for example, uh, the same class as David Bell is George Karloftis. Mm-hmm. Well, he's already now a Super Bowl champion in the National <laughs> Football League. You could see immediately, hey, that dude's playing. He's Sunday player is the term that I use. When I see a kid on Friday and I go, I think he might be a Sunday player. Karloftis was obvious to see that in. Bell was obvious to see that in. I still think Jack Kaiser, who's of that same high school class up at Notre Dame, could be that level of player as well. We probably weren't saying that about Brent, saying, hey, there there are some pieces there. And, And frankly, that's half the time how it goes, too. There are the obvious guys that make it, and there are the ones you're like, that's, he's a good high school player. He's going to be a, a, a Division I college player. We probably weren't thinking about him as an NFL cornerback when he left Warren Central High School. Yet here he is in the 44th pick of the draft and achieving the dream of not just playing in the league, 
but playing from his hometown team. At my age, JB, there's like old man moments every day, especially <laughs> like when I look in the mirror. That will be another one of them when, when, when I see him practicing on a regular basis by the time we get to July and August. Rake, when you look at what this team has done in the past in the Chris Bauer era when it comes to extensions and it comes to evaluating players, the Colts are obviously going to have a couple of big decisions to make over the next 12 months. Jonathan Taylor is going to be that elephant in the room. There's no doubt he's a generational talent. There's no doubt that he makes this offense better when he's at his best. And when he's really at his best, you can make an argument. And he's proved that at least one season. He's the best running back in the whole dang league. As you evaluate how they will kind of tiptoe around the luxury that is a rookie QB deal, what is, if at all, the timeline for Jonathan Taylor and a deal getting done in your mind? You just hit the most important thing. And that is that you've got a little more wiggle room to play with because in NFL parlance, you've got Anthony Richardson on the cheap for the next five mm-hmm. years. And so if he is going to be your guy, you've got a little extra more that you take out of the quarterback budget and put in the running back budget. Um, because of Jonathan Taylor being injured for parts of last year, um, maybe this kind of kicks the can down the road on an extension on him. Uh, I'm not sure what he or his agent or their camp of kind of the tack they yeah. might take in terms of, hey, either we're getting a deal done – in, in training camp, and then we're not going to talk about this in regular season. I haven't heard anything on either front about that. James probably has more insight on that than I would at this point. Um, it would not surprise me if the Colts even think about franchise, franchise yeah. tagging him at the end of the season um, just to kind of make it more of a short, short-term deal. But I do think there would be more of an appetite to sign Jonathan Taylor than to sign a top-level running back for other NFL teams knowing you've got that luxury of a quarterback on a rookie deal and knowing how important having the running game to also just help establish a young quarterback is going to be for this football team going forward. We've talked a lot about players, what we expect from them. Obviously, a lot is going to be put on the shoulders of Anthony Richardson, but a lot of that is also going to be put on Shane Steichen, the coach who pushed to draft him. And so, you know, we haven't had much face time with him just yet, but what have been your first impressions of him, what he could bring to this team, and obviously his track record with quarterbacks? You know, it's the track record that, that impresses you. And, you know, we, as you well know, we get some time with the players, not a lot, um, over the course of April, May, and June. And obviously that changes dramatically by the time the end of July rolls around up in Westfield and training camp. But it's interesting to see the guys, you know, say, "Hey, it's it's different," and, and it's and it's not just because it's a it's a different person. Um, it, 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 when they acknowledge it's different, it catches my attention because Shane Sykin has followed so much of the same path as Frank Reich. Mm-hmm. Obviously, significantly younger, but there are so many tie-ins between Philadelphia and Nick Sirianni that you know. I thought it might be a little bit of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, but clearly, Shane delivers his information in a little bit of a different fashion than Frank Reich does. And, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think part of, of last year, and it's no fault of Frank's, it's just human nature. This was mm-hmm. the fifth year that Frank was here. And, and you know, you don't even, this is not even a conscious thing. But when you hear the same message from the same person over the course of four or five years at some point, there's a bit of a natural tune-out factor. So I think just that, that new name, that new feel, that new voice that is leading things in charge leads to a spark a little bit in, in the guys that, that have been there and done that with this football team. So uh, I'm excited to get to kind of know him on, on, on uh, a little bit more. Um, but again, it's the track record to me that, that, that has all sold us on him and obviously we hope is the great tie-in in terms of developing Anthony Richardson as quickly as possible. Rake, last thing from us. I'd be remiss if I didn't get in a little bit of soccer with you. Boys in blue, two, three, and four to this point, nine points to their name, ninth in the Eastern Conference. Uh, where has been the, the, the takeaways to this point in the season? And obviously you got another match coming up this weekend as well. Have not been good enough offensively, bluntly. Um, we've been great in terms of possessing the ball, great in terms of passing accuracy, not great in terms of finding the back of the net. Um, you know, there's been a couple of, of nights where I think defensively some switches have been turned off at times. Um, it was a 3-1 loss at Sacramento last Saturday. Sacramento is a, is a really good team and maybe the best team in our league and the best team in the Western Conference. So playing all the way out there was always going to be a tough ask. We just split back-to-back matches on the road. We come home now for the next two against Colorado and Louisville, and those were teams that both made the conference semifinals last year. 
the switchbacks are, are, are pretty different than the group that, that we played and got beat by them 4-3 in mid-June last year. But they're still off to a good start this year uh, with five wins, four losses, and a draw. So it'll be a test for the Indy 11. Uh, but, but being at home, uh, I'm certainly hopeful for the chance of getting all three points tomorrow night. That is Greg Rakestraw, Vice President of ISC Sports Network, voice of the Indy 11, post-game for the Colts Radio Network. Of course, the preseason voice as well, and you hear him all across the state of Indiana during the high school sports season. Rake, thank you very much for taking a few minutes with us and keep enjoying it out there in the track for us. You got it, and somebody get James a, a, about a, a tenderloin the size of a hubcap. That's, that's the last thing he, that's the last box he has to check to be a Hoosier. I will take care of him. We'll, we'll be sure we do that. No doubt. <laughs> take that man to Edinburgh for dinner after the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Rake. See you guys. That is Greg Rakestraw. Nice enough to spend a few minutes with us here on the fan.